Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Ruth Burke, who's an author, tells this story of one time being at a restaurant and overhearing two women at the table next to her. And they were talking about a little girl who had gone to the zoo with her Sunday school class. And um, the little girl spent in a surprisingly large amount of time at the camel's enclosure at the zoo. And her Sunday school teacher finally made sense of what that was about and the girl's fascination when the girl asked, where do they keep the ones that can go through the eye of a needle? <laughs> and that's the question we're going to answer this morning as we look at this um, passage in Mark 10. She's young and attractive. She has taste. She's smart and well-educated, but down-to-earth and likable. She's well-dressed, but not pretentious. She's well-to-do, but she doesn't flaunt it. She drives a nice car, and she keeps a nice house. She's active in church. She's a gifted leader. She's a compassionate friend. She's an insightful and reliable confidant. She's grounded and caring. She has integrity. And best of all, she loves God. She has a vibrant, passionate faith and longs to please him. She's spiritually sensitive. And because she's spiritually sensitive, she comes to Jesus with just the right question. Jesus, how can I be sure that I have eternal life? Jesus answers her. In fact, he looks at her with love and he answers her. She stumbles over his answer and loses her faith. That is basically the encounter we read about in Mark 10. It's a scandalous encounter, a shocking encounter. Jesus' disciples are completely amazed by it. It was so shocking to them, such a game changer for their way of thinking that it stuck with them. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all chose to include it for us in their gospel accounts. And if we really understand this story, it will rock our worlds too. Jesus, Mark tells us, started on his way in verse 17. And in Mark's gospel, this is true in Luke's gospel as well, this word way is pregnant with meaning. The point isn't just that Jesus is headed somewhere. No, the point is that he's headed somewhere very specific and very ominous. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross. The way Jesus is on is the way of the cross. The way of salvation that comes as the Savior King lays down his life for us. Jesus is on the way to laying everything down, on the way to giving everything up, on the way to sacrificing everything in love. Just look down at verses 32 to 34. Jesus makes this very clear. And that's when someone comes to him, someone who Mark says is rich, and Matthew adds is young, and Luke adds is a ruler. This is someone who's the envy of everyone, who enjoys every privilege. Look how Mark describes this young man. First, 
The man is eager. He runs to Jesus, something that self-respecting people rarely did in that culture. So there's an urgency, there's a zeal, there's or maybe a desperation that this man is feeling. Second, the man bows before Jesus. This man is willing to humble himself, even though he's a rich ruler, to humble himself before Jesus. He must have great respect and admiration for Jesus. Third, this man is respectful and complimentary. He calls Jesus good teacher, a very unusual compliment that almost tries too hard since many Jews at that time felt the compliment good should be reserved for God alone. Does this man want badly to be Jesus' disciple? Fourth, this man was spiritually insightful and sensitive. He's the first person in Mark's gospel to ask exactly the right question. How do I gain eternal life? And he knows enough to go to Jesus for the answer. Finally, someone who gets it. Wow! Fifth, this man has moral integrity. He claims he's kept all the commandments his whole life. And since Jesus' response to this claim is love, It seems this man is not being arrogant or hypocritical here. He really has led an exemplary life, as best as he's known how. Sixth, this man is is very wealthy, which often was a sign in that culture of God's blessing and that God is with him. This man, like the woman I described for you a few moments ago, is the kind of person we would love to have in our church We'd undoubtedly, we'd undoubtedly put him on the elder's board if we'd failed to grasp Jesus' teaching here. He's got it together. He has lots to offer. He's clean-cut. He's exemplary. He's committed. He's passionate about Jesus. And yet, as this man rushes to Jesus, Jesus sticks out his foot and trips him up. And then lets him walk away from his salvation. A lesson in evangelism. A lesson in discipleship. A lesson in discernment. A lesson in priorities. A tough lesson, but one we all desperately need to learn. What's the lesson? Well, let's see if we can figure it out together. If you remember back a few weeks ago, we looked at what happened immediately before this encounter in verses 13 to 16. Jesus said that if we want to enter God's kingdom, we must enter it like little children. And we saw the reason for that, the reason that God's kingdom belongs to little children and those like them is that children are weak. They're overlooked. They have um, nothing to offer in terms of productivity They're completely dependent. You see the contrast with the rich man who has everything to offer, who's strong, who has it together? No wonder Jesus concludes, the first shall be last and the last first. Jesus is continuing to lead us on the way of the cross. And along the way, he's teaching us how the cross reshapes and reinterprets all of life and how we view people. 
You know, we're really fond of saying that, that Christianity is, is not supposed to be about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. We recognize that our faith isn't about a bunch of rules or rituals that we have to do to please God, but instead it's an enjoyable, loving relationship based on God's grace. And so we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And that's all true. In fact, it's more true than we know. And just how true it is, is what the man in this story discovers. Because Jesus is indeed a friend, but he isn't just any friend. He's a friend who's a king and a friend who chose to die on a cross as a way of manifesting his kingship. He's a royal friend who lovingly insists that if we're going to be in relationship with him, it won't work for us to just keep a bunch of rules that he's made. Instead, he wants to grant each of us a personal audience with him regularly and to personally communicate with us about his heart, speaking to us about his wishes for us personally and for specific situations. You know, I think a lot of us uh, will say our faith is based on a relationship with Jesus and not a bunch of rules. But then, like the rich man in the story, we're tempted to turn around and hide from Jesus, the living Jesus, behind some rules because it's safer that way. We'll gladly keep some rules or we'll try to. We'll pray and read our Bible every day. We'll come to church faithfully. We won't drink too much. We won't curse or lie or steal or speak unkindly. But then we'll say, that's enough, Jesus. I've done what you've said in your word, or at least in the popular parts that I remember. Now leave me alone to live my life. Please don't speak to me personally about anything specific because that might be threatening. Jesus, what if you say, quit your job, I have something else for you? Or you need to go reach out to that unlovable person over there. Or I don't want you spending so much time in front of that screen, it's not good for you. Or sell your possessions and give them to the poor. You know, lots of people, and some of us at CBC have stories about when we first became Christians, we broke up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, we um, maybe got rid of certain albums or CDs or LPs, whatever you had back then, <laughs> A-tracks. And, and we didn't do it because the Bible specifically said to do it. We, we did it because we sensed Jesus wanted us to. So what's happened to Jesus' leading in our lives since? Are we still taking time to listen and to respond to his leading? And do we realize that our friend Jesus is a crucified king who expects us to follow his example and to walk in his ways? Well, this is exactly the point where the rich young ruler got tripped up. He had done fine with religion. But when he took time to hear from Jesus, to personally relate to Jesus, and to let Jesus personalize for him what his faith should look like, 
this man got more than he bargained for. And he wound up walking away from Jesus, greatly disappointed. So the question for us in this passage is, what can we expect if we cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus? This king who's headed for a cross, what can we expect if we start to listen to him? Well, first of all, what are we to make about this whole money issue? I mean, Jesus tells this rich man to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. Notice Jesus does not tell him to give the money to Jesus. Jesus chose not to take this man's great wealth to fund his ministry. Think of all Jesus and his followers could have accomplished with all this money. Maybe this was a temptation for Jesus. But Jesus told the rich man to give it to the poor. Throughout Scripture, giving to the poor is one of the primary ways that God chooses to receive our money. But how does Jesus' command to this rich man relate to us today? We're, we're weird about this one in America. I've lived in several other countries. In America, we're weird about this. We're, we're one of the richest nations on earth. Yet, we're quick to point out, like the NIV study Bible notes do, popular study Bible, that, I quote, the rich, or the young man's primary problem was his wealth. There's no indication that Jesus' command to him was meant for all Christians. It applies only to those who have the same spiritual problem. And of course, we don't. We don't have that problem, so we quickly move on to the next passage. Well, I can assure you that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not all include this incident in their gospel accounts for us to skate over it because it doesn't apply to most of us anyway, especially in the richest country in the world. No, they include it because it rocked their world. And they know it needs to rock ours. Because the truth is that many of us have a spiritual problem with wealth. You know, there's a rich tradition of Christians down through history who have taken Jesus' command here very seriously, starting with the first apostles, the early church themselves, then others, St. Francis of Assisi, Ignatius Loyola, William Wilberforce, whole monastic orders, many others. And so it's very ironic that, that we today, who have so much, so easily skate over this and say it has nothing to say to us. For the rich young ruler, it seems Jesus knew that his wealth would, would get in the way of him following Jesus, who's on the way of the cross. You see, during Jesus' life on earth, Jesus could see what the future held in a way that, that others couldn't and didn't want to see. At the time Jesus lived, it was about 30 AD, history was pregnant with change and God's kingdom was breaking in. God was going to punish his enemies, those who were wicked, and establish his good kingdom. Jesus was leading anyone who would follow on a new exodus out of that coming destruction to salvation and to new life. But Jesus' way was unpopular with the rich and with the powerful, and so it would land him on a cross. 
Yet God would use that cross to defeat God's enemies and to secure the salvation of his people. And then soon after that, in 70 AD, God would visit his judgment on the nation of Israel, destroying them through Roman armies. These would be cataclysmic times of upset and dismay and turmoil. And Jesus' followers who, who would enter God's kingdom must have nothing to lose and therefore nothing to fear. They must travel light to remain faithful. Jesus is headed straight into that imminent future and his first stop is the cross and Jesus knows that no one will be able to follow him if they're still attached to concerns of preserving their wealth and their possessions. So question, was that just for then or does it still relate to us? When the infamous ship, the Titanic, sunk, it was reported that 11 millionaires went down with the ship. Today, those would be billionaires, probably. Another wealthy man who fled the sinking ship for a lifeboat, Major A.H. Pukin, left $300,000 in money, jewelry, and securities in a box in his cabin. The money seemed a mockery at that time, he later wrote. I picked up three oranges instead. No one in their right mind would, would have left the comfort and security of that great luxury liner to spend the dark, cold night adrift in a small open lifeboat. Unless, of course, that great ship was going down. But so it was for the nation of Israel, its economy, its establishment, its society. But isn't that ultimately true for us as well? Isn't it true that the ship is going down? And the only lifeboat was and is a cross. Comfortable? No. But the only safe transport to life and all the delights and promises it holds for the future. So Jesus says to this would-be follower, in effect, you can't take your riches onto the cross with you. So let them go now and follow me. How does this apply to us? Well, if you have a relationship with Jesus, ask him. Only he can tell you for sure. But don't bother to ask unless you're prepared to hear his answer. Notice that Jesus looked at this man, literally in the original language, Jesus studied him, and he loved him. Jesus' word to us is always a word of love. Jesus was not being harsh or cruel with this rich man, and he will not be harsh or cruel with us either. But he will be honest, deeply honest. He only wants us to find life. And he knows like no one else where this world is headed and what its end will be. And so he will be completely honest with us. Well, the rich man can't hear this honesty. He can't face it. His face falls. 
and he goes away sad or in the original language possibly distressed. He walks away from eternal life and Jesus lets him go. It's clear to both of them now that the man's possessions, the man's life of privilege mean more to him than Jesus and eternal life do. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He remarks to them, verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The weekend following September 11, syndicated columnist and former presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan drove to Lower Manhattan to witness the relief efforts taking place at Ground Zero. She found herself focusing on convoys of trucks filled with rescue workers who were coming off of their 12-hour shifts. You probably remember seeing it on the news. The men in the trucks were construction and electrical workers. They were police and emergency medical workers and firemen. It was a procession of the not-so-rich and famous. Nonetheless, these New Yorkers uh, were celebrities in the human drama that was unfolding that was more significant than a Broadway act. And Noonan joined the growing crowd, she recalls, of onlookers who were cheering the workers with shouts of, God bless you and we love you and blowing kisses and clapping. And Newman writes about this. I looked around me at all of us who were cheering and saw who we were. Investment bankers, orthodontists, magazine editors. In my group, a lawyer, a columnist, and a writer. We had been the kings and queens of the city, respected professionals in a city that respects its professional class. And this night, we were nobody. We were so useless, all we could do was applaud the somebodies, the workers who, unlike us, had not been applauded much in their lives. And so it is as God's kingdom comes, as it upsets and it uproots human kingdoms, and the last become first, and the first become last. God's kingdom belongs to the children and the beaten and the crucified, while the rich and the powerful, as long as they hold on to their riches and their power, can't find a place in it. And so the eager, spiritually sensitive, moral, clean-cut, wealthy young man walks away from Jesus. And Jesus remarks that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone like that to enter God's kingdom. And Jesus' disciples are amazed and they're shocked. Why? Why can't the rich enter God's kingdom? I can tell you why, because I've lived in Westchester County these past 13 years, and I can feel it in my soul. I can feel the pull. I can feel the temptation. First, the, the rich have too much to offer. We're so self-satisfied and self-sufficient. We're so used to being able to meet our own needs and take care of ourselves and get things done and not to not have to depend on God or anyone else for what we need. Second, we want to hold on to all of that, to what we have. 
Many of us have worked very hard to enjoy all this. We think we deserve it. People tell us we deserve it. And the New Testament calls this greed, which it's quick to say, make no mistake, is really idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. We're too wedded to what we have to lay it down and to follow God to the dangerous and dirty places that God wants to take us. Third, we're insulated from at least many of the troubles of life. And so, insidiously, our complacency grows and we fall asleep. We fall asleep to the suffering of the world and God's beating heart of compassion to enter the mess and mire to do something about it. And then fourth, it's not just us. Well-to-do people have well-to-do friends. We have family expectations. We have friends who wouldn't understand. We face huge pressures to maintain the status quo and not get too crazy or too radical about Jesus. Those without a lot, on the other hand, find it much easier, like little children, to come empty and to receive from God. They find it easier to live a life of faith in Jesus and with Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Luke that the poor are blessed. I've come to preach good news to the poor. They've had so much more practice at at coming like you have to come to enter God's kingdom, according to Jesus. Like a child, vulnerable, needy, empty-handed, with nothing to lose and everything to gain. Well, the disciples are astounded, and they exclaim, if it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom, who then can be saved? They're no doubt looking at this rich man and thinking, wow, this guy is a perfect recruit for the Jesus movement. He's got leadership skills, connections. He'd bring big bucks and respectability to us. But Jesus turns him down. Jesus makes it so hard for him. And now Jesus is saying it's impossible for him to enter the kingdom. What hope is there for the rest of us who have so much less to offer than And here, as Jesus answers, we begin to hear the good news in all of this. As the old song puts it, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Jesus hints here at the the mysterious power of God's grace that Jesus will make available through the cross. The grace that can melt hearts, that can rearrange priorities, and transform perspectives. Jesus says it's impossible on a human level for the rich to be saved, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. I have a college friend and former roommate who's quite a character. He's a black belt in karate, a former police officer. He has a devious sense of humor and a strong, aggressive, bullheaded personality. And we used to joke that it was a very good thing that he had become a follower of Jesus because we were afraid to think of the menace that he'd have been to the world if he wasn't. (laughs) And I think 
some of us could, could say similar things. I know as a high school graduate, I was well on my way to being a proud, conceited know-it-all who thought he was better than everyone else. I went to college with my life planned out, the degree I was going to get, all the money I was going to make. But then Jesus got a hold of me, and my heart changed. And my character began to change. And my priorities changed. And other people became more important to me than my own career success. And caring for people and their feelings and how they were doing began to become more important to me than always being right and letting them know I was right. And I can tell you this kind of change is a miracle. Ann and I joke that, that although we're happily married now, if we had met each other in college, our relationship never would have lasted because God had a lot of refining and preparing to do in both of us. And anyone who has had to put up for years with a difficult spouse or family member knows what a miracle it is when someone's character is transformed. Many of you can tell similar stories about your own life or people you know who've been radically transformed by the power of God's grace. And so Jesus says, nothing is impossible for God. Even a rich person who, who used to cling tightly to all they possess and depend heavily on their own resources and abilities and pride themselves on not needing anything from anyone and not being generous very often, even such a person can be softened and humbled and become like a child, willingly letting go of what they have and generously sharing it with the poor. But, Jesus says, this is only possible through God. Well, then Peter chimes in, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. That was hard, but maybe finally something good's going to come of it. And Jesus reassures him, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much. Here Jesus broadens it out. It's not just money. It's not, not just wealth that can get in the way. It's anything we hold onto and find our security in, family, home, our jobs, our businesses. But Jesus goes on, make no mistake, whatever I ask you to give up, I'll give you back so much more. I'm not taking away your job or your life. I'm just giving you a better one, a more free and joyful one in this life and then into the next, a lasting, eternal one. This reminds me of a time, and I'll close with this. One of my kids was a toddler. They were maybe two years old, maybe a little less. And at this stage, this little one would often find a, a sticker or a button or some other little treasure that we missed when we were childproofing, and they'd carry it around in their hand half the day. Their little hot fist, they would carry this little thing around. And one day, they had a sticker or, or something like that in their hand, and um, I was eating peanuts, and they wanted some. They wanted some, some peanuts. And I said, 
put out, you know, little hands, put out your hands and I'll give you some. I'll pour some in for you. And they tried, but they kept like two or three fingers wrapped around that little sticker that they didn't want to give up. And so I could only put a few peanuts on their hand and, and the peanuts are falling off. And of course, they want a big handful. They're upset um, and they're getting upset at me. And, and I said, well, you got to let go of, of what you have in your hand. But they didn't want to let go of it. <laughs> Yet they wanted the peanuts. And so they start screaming at me because they're two, right? <laughs> you can't reason with a toddler. Well, finally, I coaxed them to put down the sticker. And now they had two big empty hands together to receive the full portion of what they wanted. That's all Jesus was asking of the rich young ruler. And it's all he's asking of us. To give up our fistfuls of little trinkets so we can receive the abundance of true lasting life that he wants to give us.